All right, so we're at the very end of our um, Acts chapter 2, so you can go ahead and get your outlines out, turn to page 8. We'll reread that text again. Um, the last few verses we covered up through Acts 2.38, we spent a considerable amount of time on repent and be baptized, every one of you, so on and so forth. Um, we, we spent quite a bit of time on that to better understand whether baptism is essential for salvation. And um, chapter 3 should be really quick. If you remember, that's the lame man at the gate called Beautiful that gets healed. It's a very short story. It's about 26 verses and it goes real fast. So Wednesday we should be able to finish chapter 3 and kind of get on a roll for a few chapters, maybe until around chapter 6. So, um, But tonight we're going to finish up chapter 2 and maybe pose a few questions for your consideration. One of the primary things that we're going to try to address is the... Um, idea that we observe as churches that baptism grants you entrance into the Lord's church. So we're going to talk about this because this is probably the clearest example in scriptures that I know of where that is shown. It's not explicitly stated, but it's shown that the moment you get baptized, you're added then to the church body. And so we'll kind of look at that, have that be a focus tonight, and maybe a few other things that... um, we can see here. So page 8, Acts 2, 37 through 47 is where we'll read. That's the end of the chapter. It says this. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles." And all that believed were together, and had all things common, sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so we're going to tell you from the get-go that the having all things common, we're not going to deal with that tonight. There's going to be a scripture in a couple chapters that's going to deal very substantially. That's going to be the primary focus. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when they drop dead because they don't give in all those things. So since this chapter was such a big chapter, I even have in the outline. We're just going to hold off on that one and we'll come back to that because I'm sure there's a lot of questions revolving revolving around that. So a couple things to note. Number one, we want to point out that In the midst of this chapter, these people have had quite an extreme change in their attitude towards what's going on. Fifty days earlier, many of them are likely at Passover, and they're in the very least consenting to the death of Jesus. Then we find in Acts chapter 2 that many of the same people or similar people have gathered together on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, and they have, here's something going on. And they're intrigued by it. And they come, and some are crying out, and some are actually saying, they're drunk. Ignore them. 
Others are curious about everything. Peter begins to preach. And by the end of his sermon, they're crying out. And it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they cried out, What shall we do? So they've gone from many of them, not all of them, but rejecting Jesus, intrigued or skeptical by the apostles teaching and preaching at this point, or what's going on over there. They've heard this sermon, and now many of them are convinced that what's being said is true. And they're pricked in their hearts. And then finally, thankfully, we get to this last place in verse 41, and they gladly receive the word. And I wanted to point out that kind of slow change over a 50-day period and point out a couple things. Number one, this is clearly the evidence of the Holy Spirit taking the Word and working in their hearts. And a lesson that has been reiterated around here many times, we cannot, fo- we cannot force people's attitude towards the Gospel to change. That can be towards somebody that you're trying to convert at work, even down to your children. Seen very often where parents and felt the temptation myself to pressure out of love and affection. We can't do that. We've got to trust that God can take people who are not only apathetic, which is the main attitude we see today among people that come to church that don't seek the Lord and don't get saved. It's usually they're apathetic. They just don't care and don't want to hear and don't want to do anything. God took people here that clearly rejected Christ and took them to the furthest extreme where they're calling out and saying, what do we do? Help us. And so our appeals when we see people like this must not be to those people. They must be to the Lord. And that's something that has bothered me for many years is that it seems like when when experiences I've had is that when the church becomes burdened, not this church, but just speaking generally, for lost people, there's this temptation to pressure lost people. No. Pressure the Lord. All the pressure that His Holy Spirit would speak to what their need is. And we can see the power of what He can do. Take one who cries out, crucify Him, and make that same person cry out, what do I do that I, because I crucified Him? And so I wanted to point out that transition because it seemed like in chapter 2, it just notes that kind of over and over. And so the effects of this, they gladly received the word, and it tells us a certain number of people were saved. So 3,000 people on this day of Pentecost um, were saved, those that gladly received the word. Now notice also, they were baptized. Um point about this and I've got this if you'll look on page number 9 let's see here Um, the second to last bullet point we'll just point this out to you those that believed and were saved immediately joined the church Lord's church through baptism this precedent is clear through the book of Acts Um, let's see this one I was going to read to you Okay, yeah. So let's keep reading. So here are all the examples in Acts. Gave a whole bunch where this precedent is set. Where somebody gets saved, they join the church. You can see there's a whole bunch of and I just stopped at 18.8. There may have been more after that. The very same day they were saved was the day they committed to following Jesus as He commanded. In total, approximately 3,000 people were saved and baptized. 
The unfortunate practice of being saved and not following the Lord in baptism is foreign to the clear examples of Scripture. A person who has repented and believed in Christ may be saved, but they are in sin when they refuse to pick up their cross and follow His clear commandment and believer's baptism. So I'm just pointing this out, and I'm not doing this, you know, roughly by any stretch, but I feel like it's worth pointing out. The book of Acts, when you got saved, you got baptized. And so, you know, I remember whenever I got saved, it was a year and ten days before I joined the church. I was ten years old when I got saved. And the sole reason is I was afraid to get up and talk to people. I was nervous, so the irony of me being here now is, you know, uh, and you guys say, you don't stop talking now, right? Um, And so... I was just afraid. We had a bigger church, probably 120 on Sunday mornings, and I was 10. I was just scared to talk to people. And I hid it first behind the excuse, well, I'm just praying where the Lord wants me to be. Now, to think back how stupid that comment is, is kind of humorous. Like, my mom drove me to church, right? There weren't a lot of options. She's not going to go somewhere else on the way, drop me off, and, and do that whole logistical thing. But I would say I don't feel led to join. Uh, which is kind of peculiar to me. The example of Scripture is that you get saved and baptized. Not this prolonged period of waiting for the anointing to come down and guide you. If your family goes to this church and you're a young person and you get saved, you need to join this church. There's not really a, a waiting and seeing as if the Lord is going to do some you know, different crazy thing. That's at least how it seems is the precedent here in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying there couldn't be exceptions to that, but it just seems like an excuse to try to avoid joining the church. Here the example over and over is people who got saved, they joined the church. Now, um, we'll notice the wording here, and this is really important. So it says in verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So notice, they were baptized, and it was added unto them 3,000 people. That to me is about as close as you're going to get of saying, baptism adds people to the body of Christ. And then it continues at the very end, and it says in verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So people were saved, and then after that, they were added to the body. doesn't tell us how in that particular uh, uh, verse, but that just kind of notes to us that, hey, being saved is not being added to the body. Notice that in verse 47, right? He added those who had been saved. So there is a, you can be saved and not be added. By implication, we can read that. And so... Um, And then I got to kind of thinking about this, and I I should have put this in the outline and didn't. If we just think about what baptism and what the church is, it makes a lot of sense to know that one would lead right into the other. And here's what I mean. One of the symbols of baptism, or one of the things it symbolizes, is that you're being buried, your old life is being buried and put to death, and then you're raised in what? To walk in newness of life. Okay, so in one sense, it's a resurrection in order to walk in a new life. 
The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. Two words come together to form this word. And it means a people who are called out, separated from the world, called out from among the world. So think of it like this. When you're lost and in sin, you're walking in trespasses and in sins in the fellowship of the world, which is also sinful. And when you get saved, you, God um, regenerates you, makes you new within. And then when you join the church, you're saying, I'm going to step out from among these people with these people. These people are called out. I'm going to step out from among them and with these people to do what? To walk in newness of life, which is what baptism does. So it makes sense to me that baptism is this natural entrance to the Lord's church since the end product of baptism, walking in newness of life, is the same thing that this church symbolically is doing, walking together, separated from the world, in in this new life together. And so to me, it, it would seem just, again, a natural sequence here for baptism to add you to these called out people doing the same thing you are doing or you're striving to do. And so to me, verse 41 is perhaps the most clear precedent, though it's not explicit, as explicit as maybe we wish it was, uh, teaching there. Somebody have a comment to add to that or a thought to add to baptism adding you to the church. Now, one of the things, and I'm sure you, you've perceived this sometimes in, in my preaching and teaching, that um, one of the things that has disturbed me is how I think unintentionally baptism has been both neglected and um, undervalued. When you get baptized, you're making a commitment. Like, I really, and, and I've said it like this before, and I don't mean to, I'm not against this, but like, to me there was this, uh, growing up, the way I looked at baptism was like, oh, it's this really cool event where like the family comes and everybody, we would get a certificate whenever I was in, in church, like you get a baptism certificate and you buy somebody a Bible and it, and then, you know, it's like you go to a special dinner afterward. Um, and it was kind of like, um, what was it for Catholics, like First Communion, right? Like it was this, or for, for Jews, uh, I'm trying to think, what, it, what, it, what is it, uh, like when you're, well, yeah, Bar Mitzvah, thank you. It's like, gets elevated as this ceremony that, yes and no. Like that's not, I'm not against people doing that, but that's not what it is. When you make a, a lifelong commitment like, you have to do so in sobriety. Like, this is serious. I am committing to these people right here, this local body. And baptism is this profession of identification. I'm identifying with these people, and I am committing to these people and the mission that this church is set to do, both generally and specifically. And what I mean is, generally, we're given commands as a church body to go into the world, to teach the gospel, to baptize, or to preach the gospel, to baptize, and to teach. That's the general commission. 
But individually, this church has been commissioned in order to do that in very specific ways. The minister school, the school here at the church. All of these are things that when somebody joins this body, you may not be intricately involved in every part of that, but your commitment is, I want to further the mission of this body. And so, baptism to me has been this... this Idea, and I've I've tried, I've spoken at times to people who were wanting, were, were were thinking about joining a church, and they were nervous, like I was, about speaking in front of people. They were nervous about having to pray out loud if they were a young man. They were nervous about, you know, getting an office. Maybe somebody would give them an office of the church, and they didn't want to do that. And they were feeling this pressure by people. You know, you need to join the church. You need to join the church, and. And when I began to peel back and ask questions like, well, do you intend to spend the rest of your life devoted to this body? Do you intend to come to three services a week? And we'll talk about that here in a moment. And delve into understanding the word and making its application in your day-to-day life. And when they looked at me with like deer in the headlights, well, no, I hadn't done that. My recommendation was, well, then don't join the church. Like what we don't want is just people coming so they can have this moment and we can temporarily celebrate and then they go living like they've always lived. You ought to be able to look back and say, I began to live different, yes, at salvation, but then I committed to do so and began to do that after I joined the Lord's church. And frankly, I don't want people to join this church if they're not committed to doing this. And I feel like it's fair question. So when, when new people are joining our church and they've never been baptized before, I have them back to the, the um, office during Sunday school for two or three weeks and kind of ask them these things. And at least share with them, I want you to make this commitment with your eyes wide open. Not after the fact, wondering... Well, why are people expecting me to do this and expecting me to do that? And why is there division because I'm, I'm aloof? Well, because that's what you committed to do. And I want to make sure people understand that. Somebody have a comment about that or about... I could ask this question. Did you, when you got baptized, understand the commitment you were making? Because I didn't. No? How many people feel like they did? That it was implicit in what was being taught to them that this is a big commitment. So I hope as, as, as you have children that get saved, and like I hope you can communicate that to them both in your words but also in actions that they see. I, I'm, I feel an obligation. Not that, that can be used in a bad way. I have a desire as well, but like I know this is a commitment. So it's always been... Um, when we, when we have our boys in sports, I've heard people say before, you know, well, you want to teach them commitment. And so you don't want to miss games and practices. And I've thought, well, yeah, I want to teach them commitment. That's why I'm bringing them to church. It's a commitment that is a superior commitment than those commitments. Those are transient commitments. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They may be seasonal commitments. This is a lifelong commitment. Right here. And I'm and, and and there's a lot that could be said about that perhaps and I won't I won't go to that. 
Now let's notice what they do following their baptism. And I think this is an a important point worth pointing out. Um, verse 42 is where we're looking. And they continued steadfastly. I looked that word up. That means diligently. So they continued diligently in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. So let's break down a couple of those things for a moment. Now, this is another thing that is perhaps a um, pet peeve of mine, is that at the same time, baptism, you're making a commitment. You're not making a commitment to attend. And that's it. You're making a commitment to engage. And there's a big difference. I remember at the last church that I was a member at, uh, we sat, and I remember one day the, the older people got to talking about all the uh, children that were no longer in church, and they just couldn't understand like why they weren't in church, because they were taken to Sunday school every week, and they were taken to... And so I just asked a question in the middle of it. I just said, well, when they were doing that, how engaged were they? Like, were they testifying? Were they participating in the heart of the activities in the church? Were they doing devotions? Were they ever burdened for people? Like, were they getting up and saying, you know, I have a burden for these people. Please pray for my coworker. Please. There's a variety of forms that people can demonstrate engagement based on personality and gift and what God's purpose has for that person in the church. But what has always worried me is when people mistaken devotion to the church to coming. That's step one. But it says about this, they were steadfast about their behavior. Not about just getting together. What were they steadfast about? They continued in the apostles' doctrine. So they wanted to learn. A few weeks ago, that's what I said on a Sunday morning, is Wednesday night is when this church really sets aside to learn. This is when we go verse by verse through the Scripture and try to understand our doctrine, understand the teachings of the Scripture. And so to me, this is how our church is set aside to do that, to remain steadfast and diligent in the doctrine. And I love it whenever one of you, as we're, we're having these conversations, say, I was studying this this week, and this is what I think this means. That's a good thing, that we're going home, we're curious about what's going on, that shows our steadfastness, our diligence. Or perhaps, again, with young people, that's what I've always been encouraged about, was when they ask questions. Even if they're very elementary ones that all the older people know the answer to. They're asking questions and saying, hey, I didn't understand what that meant. And I hope you feel that here. If you don't understand something that even seems rudimentary, you say, well, what about this? Or, I don't understand this, this question that he's asking. Or, listen, if you knew what all these older people throughout their life, the things that they've looked up in a dictionary, or the questions they've asked their preacher, or the questions they've asked other people, trust me, the way you gain understanding is by asking rudimentary questions. And so, here, they're continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. Doctrinal understanding leads to an enriched spiritual life. Don't think, well, Brother Danny's a Sunday school teacher. Brother Ron's a Sunday school teacher. They're the ones that need to know the doctrines. I don't. Yes, you do. 
that enriches when the more you understand the doctrines of the word, the more you understand God and the more you understand him, the more you are drawn to communion with him. And so you don't have to be able to unravel all the mysteries of revelation, but you do need to show a steadfastness, a diligence in just understanding the word. And that can come very simply every day. You have a question about life and you say, what does the Bible say about this? And so you get on Google. That's where you start or Bible gateway. And you say, what does forgiveness mean in the Bible? And then you go to trusted resources and say, hey, as I've been looking into this, as I've been asking questions, here are some more questions that have been created. Like, it's very fundamental. It's not like you come out and, you know, when you get called to preach or when you become a deacon, suddenly you're just zapped with knowledge. No, you don't, right? You have to dig and ask the simple questions. That's why they continue diligently in the Apostles' Doctrine and fellowship, Best way I could tell about the definition of this word, it included both formal and informal. It just means they were together, fellowshipping, communing with one another. Um, That's a very healthy thing for a church. You've probably noticed here, there's a dynamic in our relationship that changes when we come out here and the kids play with the water balloons and we're throwing cornhole bags. That is a dimension, shouldn't be the biggest dimension, but that dimension of fellowship cultivates love for one another, cultivates a desire to trust one another and and, and builds these relationships. And as far as I can tell, that's what he's talking about here. And then it says in breaking of bread. Now, in a lot of translations, like in the Latin and others, they've got this translated as Eucharist, which means... Like the Lord's Supper is what they mean by breaking of bread. So you could think of the breaking of bread as just informally we're getting together and eating together, which may be what this means, but the way that most translators thought that it meant the breaking of bread was actual communion. So what we did today, earlier today, and I just made a brief comment about that this morning, coming together for the Lord's Supper is an important thing that we do together. And um, we need to hold to that. And in prayers. So... They came together in prayers too. That's a, notice the various dimensions of our gathering here. And I think our church does a good job reflecting these dimensions. We come and we study the apostles' doctrine. We fellowship together informally to cultivate relationships. We have communion and perform the ordinances together. And we gather together in prayer. That's a pretty robust and, um, I think, what God would have us to do. Um, In verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So it doesn't tell us what that is. But remember that this performance of miracles and wonders and signs, whatever those two words mean, were validating, the purpose was to validate the message. In other words, what we see in Scripture is that Paul didn't just walk around and say, I feel really sorry for this guy, I'm going to heal him. The purpose of the biblical miracles was to validate the messenger's message. 
Or in other words, I'm going to preach to you what to you is this new doctrine. You're going to be skeptical and hesitant to hear it. But what ought to convince you that this doctrine is of God and that I'm a true, uh, quote, prophet sent from God is that no man can do these kind of supernatural miracles unless God is helping him do this. And so they come, they perform these, these apostles do, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Again, we'll deal with that one in a couple weeks when we go to Acts chapter 5. Sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. That's what having all things common mean. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So let me ask this question before we look at these last few verses. If we're starting from scratch, how do you think, what do you think a good way or good thing to do for new members would be? How could we aid people who are new members? I'm talking about people who have, are not coming from a sister church. They're not familiar with things. Perhaps they're one of our young people that gets saved. What would be helpful things that we as a church could do, formally, informally, to help find them a place in this body, one, and two, build the knowledge of what that commitment they've made truly is. What's something we could do as a church, do you think? Okay. And what would be the purpose of that class? I think I know the answer, but just to hear it. Basically, to provide them the basic instruction of the belief of missionary Baptist of the Bible, the components. Some of the core beliefs, mm-hmm. right? That uh, once saved, always saved, and such. Okay. But basically, give them some kind of footing, some good ground to grow on. Mm-hmm. Somebody else have something. Now, Evan, in that regard, we produce a beliefs and practices uh, panel that we give to each one. That kind of gives them a guide of you know mm-hmm. what believe and everything. So. You know who put together that pamphlet? Uh, the, Deacons. the Deacons did, okay. So another way to answer this question is ask yourself this. What did I lack when I joined the church? Like what would have been something that, and I think this is probably the experience of many, this is my experience. I got saved when I was 10, I joined the church when I was 11. And from 11 to 17, my spiritual life just flatlined for the most part. Like, I, I knew I was not supposed to drink, because that's what the church covenant said. This is just my, my thought process, okay? Don't drink, because the church covenant says don't do it. Um, and then the preacher would get up, and occasionally he would preach these rebuking sermons. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, and do this. So I knew there was a moral component. I'm not supposed to curse. I'm not supposed to whatever. Right? But when it came to, like, growth in the Word and understanding the teachings of the Word, when it came to, like, my spiritual life being between me and the Lord. And that's something that's so important. And I know Catalina and I have talked about this is important to her is like, 
that there's an ownership taken by our young people that my walk with the Lord is mine and the Lord's. It is not built on my parents, my family, my pastor. They can be accessories to aid that. But this is me and the Lord. And I have to be vigilant and pursue that. So from 11 to 17, for me, there was none of that. And then 17, I got called to preach, and I was like, oh, shoot. (laughs) Right? Oh, no. I know nothing about nothing, and that was not an overstatement. I've said to this church before, I was 20 before I realized that the whole Bible was about Jesus. Like, that's pretty bad. That I grew up in church, I was preaching for two and a half years, and then like one day I'm like, whoa, it's all about Jesus. Oh, wow, okay. Right? Now, I'd heard that statement over and over, but to actually understand it, and if that is the truth, it reorients everything. Like everything is reoriented by simple truths. And so, to go back to this question, what do you think you lacked when you joined the church? What caused you to flatline? And then what changed that for you? I probably won't say this right, so let me get to the point. But what we're doing right now is a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. This was not this was not the element and program of church. It was common, like you said. You heard the sermon. You knew it's what you were supposed to do. The covenant is there before you, and you're thinking, well, now this attempt to help us understand and to see the depth of knowledge that's required and the commitment that's required. I know this whole chapter is full of important stuff, but when you get to chapter to verse 37, mm-hmm. and it's, it's like, they is what have we done? And that's the depth of realization that's required to turn you around and put you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. This is an aside to those comments. But we haven't been to a movie. We don't go to movies. There was a movie this week that I thought would be okay and then we could go see an Agatha Christie borrow. The movie itself was somewhat frightening. But the thing that gets you off track totally are those 11 previews you see that were totally ungodly. I wouldn't even watch them. Mm-hmm. much less the children that accompanied us to this night of entertainment. Mm-hmm. But verse 37 is the realization of, I thought it was counterfeit money, and I tore it up. And I had wasted an eternal fortune. Mm-hmm. What did I do? Mm-hmm. And it's only study like this in a group where we all see how much we need to know that gets us to that place. Mm-hmm. And in the past, that was not the practice. So you would say, what go ahead. You say, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't expanded on any further. Mm-hmm. So systematic teaching. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing, Kelly and I talked about this some time ago, is, is, and she was 
pointing out a, a deficit in my style of preaching that's accurate, accurate complaint. That she at one point, and this wasn't her exact words, but it seems like I'm preaching to answer questions sometimes. And I thought about that a lot. I thought, okay, why do I do that? And it was for the reason that you pointed out is when I was a kid, I sat there and I would listen to these people say like, this is what you do, or this is the only way. And I would think like, that's a pretty absolute statement. And immediately at like 15, I would think, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And they just never touched it. And so I went feeling obligated by law with no understanding. Now, again, that has its own set of, you can do that too much. We see here, Paul proclaims. He doesn't prove. Right? So there's a time to prove and there's a time to proclaim. I thought before in a church it would be helpful if our Sunday schools aligned to have systematic teaching. Or in other words, this. If you go to Sunday school at Old Union between 5 and 18, by the time you come out at 18, you should understand these things. Now, not again, you could get too rigid, but wouldn't it be a wonder? I mean, you expect that of your school, right? Like when your kids go to school and they're in seventh grade math, there's curricula that says, here's what they're going to understand. And how much do you think we would be benefited at 18 years old, our kids are getting out and they, they can tell us, we know what they can tell, all the, the elementary Bible stories from the beginning. And then also not only just those, but then like in each one, so in Callan and Landry's age group, all they're going to memorize is, you know, two by two, flood came, ark, guy's name's Noah, had kids. Well, then whenever you get to Judson's age, wouldn't you think it'd be a beneficial thing for him to understand? All of that was pointing to something. He can comprehend that. He can understand that this is not just a cute story about animals. This is about judgment. This relates to a judgment day that is coming where all flesh will be wiped out except those on the ark. And the Bible identifies Jesus as the ark. And so as they're coming, and then on Sunday mornings, unknowingly, On Wednesday nights, unknowingly. On Sunday nights, whenever preachers come and preach for us, unknowingly. Those same truths are being reiterated. And you probably have the experience when you're driving home and it just so happened that your kid's Sunday school lesson overlapped with what the preacher said. And they're excited about it. Because they, yes, that's what we've been talking about. And it makes this, I I remember that happening when I was a kid. My mom was teaching through the book of Joshua to our 10-year-old class. Doing the very thing we're doing, just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, teaching us through the book of Josh, which when I now look at it, I'm saying that was kind of a brutal book to go through for a bunch of kids, right? Genocide and everybody's killed in that book. But nonetheless, I remember when we got to, uh, I think it's chapter 7, where the Jericho, the walls of Jericho fall. I heard Terry Foster preach hundreds and hundreds of sermons, and there's one I remember. <laughs> 
My mom taught on Jericho. Brother Terry got up and preached on Jericho. And that synchronizing was a form of unintentional systematic teaching. And so one of my first sermons, because one of the few things that I knew was about Jericho. All that to me, I agree with you, I think, and I'm not saying we have to do that, of course. I'm just saying I think systematic teaching has a profound effect and plants a seed of, if I tell a kid, a young person, after they get saved, let's say they get saved at 15, and I hand them the Bible after they get saved, and I say, okay, you need to know this. And they're like, whoa. Versus, I hand this to them, and since they were five, our church has been systematically teaching them through this. And yet now God has given them a spiritual understanding through salvation to where even the things they've already learned take a richer meaning. Um, there's my, I'll step off my soapbox here, okay. Um, somebody else, systematic teaching. In short, I agree with you, Sister Peggy. Somebody else have something. Verse 44. Yep. Where he talks about that, all believe we're together and have all things in common. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's necessary or crucial to have all things in common. Because they, they were living, and some would, would you know, accuse them of living in common. They weren't. This was voluntary. Mm-hmm. But they were, you know, shared everything. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's important for brothers and sisters of the body to share a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of their time together. I think our closest friends should be our brothers and sisters in the other church. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, um, I wanted, we lived 15 miles away from our church. And the kids that went to, the, besides myself, they went to school, other schools in other cities, other towns. And so, even though I grew up, you know, some of these kids, we, we were born the same year, you know, we, we knew each other our whole lives. Mm-hmm. But we spent far less time with each other than, and, and of course our mothers and fathers and all, you know, all of the families, spent far less time with each other mm-hmm. than what you know, they did, you know, because they were in school together. And I longed to form relationships with these kids, to be closer to them you know, than mm-hmm. what we were. And uh, one of the things, let me just say this, if, if we want people to be engaged, we've got to engage with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things when we started, when we joined here and started going, um, I think as soon as my letter was was read, I wasn't here for to hear it. I think they put me on a committee that business. Meeting. <laughs> okay. And um, sounds like Micah over there. <laughs> So, and one of the things when we were going to Buffalo, we lived in Clarksville. So we traveled 70 something miles, I think, there about every Sunday to go back and forth. You know, for six years, I think it was, maybe seven, seven years, I was traveling back and forth from Clarksville to just south of Westmoreland and Bransford. And so we weren't even available to be in Mm-hmm. Which, to your point, as far as being part of a local body, mm-hmm. okay, even though you know, that's the church I was raised in, I mean, there's, there's, people want to argue, well, that's where I came from, and, and that's all well and good, but if you're going to be you no know, far away, 
Now, granted, there were no churches that believed quite like us where we were. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we we're going to have to travel some distance regardless. But still, we weren't able to be there to be involved in things. Mm -hmm. So we didn't serve in capacities, committees and things like that because it wasn't practical. Mm -hmm. Okay? So for this church, and we'd only been going here for a year and you just joined, to have that much trust and confidence in us and me to put, you know, put me on a committee or whatever, I mean, that was huge. And I recall you preaching a sermon during a revival back in, I think it was 2016, 20, somewhere, several years ago. Mm -hmm. And you, you were talking about how people longed to uh, have a uh, responsibility, to have a, a function in something, you know, to be a part of something. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Mm -hmm. People want to contribute deep down. Mm -hmm. Okay? And they want to be a part of something, you know, and, and, and to help bring that about is very important. Mm -hmm. Whatever you can do in that way, to help them, you know, and that engage them so that they will be engaged. Mm -hmm. I think those are important things as well. Spending time with one another outside of church mm -hmm. and talking about the Lord as much as you can while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Amen to everything you said. It's a lot of things that, and if you think of the times when churches have been fragmented or a church that you've been a part of were not as close, they lacked those things. One of the things in Indianapolis that was tough is that, and this is really a, a new problem, for all of human history since Christ established the church, by nature it had to be local because transportation now, technically, you don't. I've heard of people traveling three and four times farther than you traveled every Sunday morning to go to church. Two-hour drive one way, two-hour drive back. And that has a, an effect. And so, so many things I could, I could say that you talked about were just very good. Somebody else have a comment? So, to jump off of what Gerald said, so coming into things, when I joined the church, first of all, I was not even an adult an adult, frankly, <laughs> for a month. But I was brand new to everything. I was brand new to the faith. I was brand new to all of it. And I joined a church um, that was very, very small. There were like, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, like 15 attending members. Most, all of them were 55 and older. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's the case with a lot of churches in Indianapolis um, you know, you have a very small pot to draw from in terms of active members. And I agree completely with Gerald. I think it's so important to have members that are engaged, and I think it's our responsibility as a membership to be engaged in the body. But I think one error they made with me in my experience was immediately they elected me as clerk. And I had no <laughs> idea... Like, what I, like, I literally had no idea what I was doing. Like, okay, so I'm the mailman. Like, I get the letters out of the mail, but I have no clue. And so I think that there's an appropriate progression of responsibility that needs to be assigned to the membership. And needs to be, you know, I think that that's one way of encouraging engagement and doing it in a way that it, I think it can be done appropriately to encourage the involvement 
without assigning maybe too much responsibility or, um, yeah, having too much, you know, obviously there's, you're not going to bring in a brand new person and ask them to teach a class. Like that's just not an appropriate role position to put them in, but doing it in such a way that encourages them to, to be involved and to dig in. And I think that's what really encouraged me to deepen my spiritual life was that I was asked to teach. And I was kind of like, oh man, I got to get serious. But that was a few years in. I mean, that wasn't like right off the bat. So I think we're really blessed here in the sense of we have more than 10 people that attend. We have a very active, um, healthy membership here. But I, I see that. I think that's a pretty common problem in areas mm -hmm. where that's not the case. And then people get put in these positions really prematurely and it actually ends up hurting the membership more than benefiting the membership. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Somebody else have a comment you want to make? I think the engagement thing is, I mean, that, I think that's a good, that's, that's wonderful what we should do. But I think really what we're trying to do or what we should be trying to do, uh, and something that I think we, that the church has failed with in the past, is trying to cultivate and foster a desire to serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you engage somebody, you can go about it wrong, you can throw them in over their head, they get discouraged, and, and it may it may be detrimental. Uh, on the other hand, I have seen us, somebody who had just joined the church, a young convert, and they made a Sunday school teacher. Uh, probably not not appropriate to do that. But then, when I was a kid, uh, I can remember there was almost this attitude of uh, you young saved people, you're the church of Mars. Mm -hmm. But you just sit there and let us take care of things till till you grow up. It's not your turn yet. Mm -hmm. That's that's going too far in the the other direction. So the engagement is something that could help foster that. But more more importantly, what what can we do to make them want to serve the Lord? The mm -hmm. desire, because there's a lot of the kids that you know come to Sunday school when they're young. And we lose them by the time they're sixteen. Mm -hmm. uh, so, how do we how do we overcome that mm -hmm. sort of thing? How do we make them want to be here? S education is good, but school is mandatory. Mm -hmm. Sunday school isn't. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things this church has done that's been a good thing is invested in things for our young people. That, uh, for example, the <clears throat> Do Re Mi Music School. Like, if we lay out our budget, I circle that one as one that's untouchable for me. For the simple fact of many, not all of our young people, but many of our young people are engaged highly and they're, they want it. And, like, to me, I'm thinking, let's not mess this up. <laughs> you know, like, they're wanting to get together with a bunch of church people where there's preaching every night and they're singing gospel music and they're wanting to stay there for two weeks and not come home. <laughs> Good. <laughs> like, why would we not want to foster that, but take that and as other young members begin to show both a proclivity and interest towards other ways of service in the church, promoting that. 
it may look different. It may not be as clear as say, hey, let's send a check to this place and then just have that done. It may involve other investment, not financially from our church, but um, I think you can see here one of the things that in everybody's comments, like we're all committed to this thing in whatever capacity in the right way. And I think that alone has a pretty powerful effect on the next generation. Like when we're saying, we want you to be ready to take over when it's your time. When God has called you, we want to cultivate these things. We want to get together in fellowship formally and informally. We want... That has a big effect. I've been a member of churches where nobody wanted any of that. Nobody wanted even to sit in the same pew as each other. You stay over there, I'll stay over here. And like as a 12-year-old, I could sense that. And... Unfortunately, um, out of the 100 kids that would come to vacation Bible school, maybe 7 to 10 are still in church in some capacity. Uh, I can't help but think that had a, a contribution. Somebody else before we try to finish tonight. I want to say one more thing. I'm, yep. I'm a little passionate about this subject. So the, I think the other thing that when I look back in retrospect that made a difference for me was having spiritual mentor, mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, when I attended, I attended by myself. And there were two adults. One was the pastor and one was another woman who was 20 years older than me who took great interest in me. And, um, you know, they would invite me over for lunch. They would, we would go to events together. They would sit and just talk to me about my life. About, you know, at that point I was starting college and they just took a deep interest in me and in my spiritual development. You know, we would talk about anything from you know, what I was going to choose as a career to questions I had about Bible to, I mean, not anything. There was no specific, but they cultivated that in me. And I think that development of that relationship was pivotal for me. Mm-hmm. Staying in church, staying involved in church, and having a little bit of guidance. Because my parents are wonderful people, but at that time they could give me zero spiritual guidance. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think taking interest, you know, it's, it's wonderful when kids have uh, godly parents, and that's obviously essential. But, like, one reason I let my kids sit with you in church is because they have significant relationships in the church outside of me. Mm-hmm. Like, you can be a lot more effective sometimes spiritually in their life than you or I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those development of those relationships is... I mean, it goes along with the fellowship, but really being intentional about it. Mm-hmm. That's really, really pivotal. Absolutely. Can I say one more thing? Go for it. What's easiest way to start a fire? Lighter. <laughs> so it's important that, you know, to, to cultivate this desire to serve the Lord. We have to have the desire to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A lot of good practical things for us to think about as a church moving forward, I think. Um, We've taught our children the Bible as they're growing and they're young. They're realizing and learning things that are very important, 
concepts that will all of a sudden be the light bulb moment mm -hmm. after they're saved. Mm -hmm. And at a time in your teen years when you're rather reluctant to have to focus on you, they already have a basis to build on. It's the foundation of where we can go from here mm -hmm. because they learned it when they were still. Mm -hmm. And it was given importance in their life. But it's the foundation they were getting then that they're going to take and build on after they're saved. Mm -hmm. And I've learned so much from other people's questions. I feel stupid sometimes. And I think, gee. But then somebody else asks a question, and I think, how much I've learned from listening this morning. Ask a question, and I've been thinking about that all afternoon simply because she had been studying ahead and she read something that she wanted to know about, and it's been on my mind all afternoon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yay, sits. <laughs> Let's finish up here these last couple of verses, and we'll make one final point. We'll be done tonight. Um, verse 46, and they, can, and they continue, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their, eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Here's a comment that I wrote down here. From verse 41, no, yes, verse 41 to verse 47. This is what, where God wants us, and this is what Satan strives to prevent for us. So, the church is unified, and they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. They're loving one another, they're getting together with one another, they're supporting one another, they're steadfastly in the Word, collective prayer, they're doing the ordinances. They're a church. And you notice it said they were gathering together daily. Like it was a powerful movement that changed these people's lives. But not only was the day of Pentecost changing their life, the after effects were just changing their lives. And as that was happening, God just kept adding to the church. Now, I've thought before... Uh, one of the things that caused me to leave the church I was a first member at, I was almost 16 when I joined a different church. And um, I remember having the thought right before I changed, the church was very divided and there were, there were definitely teams in the church. One team was over here and one over there and then one sat in the back left corner. I mean, there was distinct teams. I think they had elections. Who was the leader of the, each team? I mean, it was very divided. And I remember on a revival, there were a number of the young people that were just a few years younger than me were still not saved. And I remember having the thought, why would God add to this? Like, not why would He save them, because that's between them and the Lord, and God is gracious. But like, why would He add to us? We're not only not benefiting him and the work, we're hurting everybody who comes in here. And I think that's something that's worth consideration in a church is when there's a drought, 
maybe God is doing us and those good by not adding. And then when there comes a point where, okay, the people are doing what God wants, God adds and blesses and says, not for our sake, like there's this simplistic notion of like, well, I want to be blessed, so let's pray God adds people to church so I can be blessed. No, no, no. Let's pray God adds to the church so they can be blessed. Like, I remember whenever I had this young guys group that was seriously saved my life at that age of 15, 16 years old in the sense of where the direction of my life went. Like, we had a very strong group culture. Not one person was coming in and changing it. Like, it was very deeply rooted, and we had mentors, as Kathleen mentioned, that helped keep us on the right track when we would kind of deviate as young men. And when things were so good and things were great, like, and then we'd meet some new, new young man. Like, I remember my brother-in-law... Jeremy Miller will be coming in October for our, our, our revival. I remember he had been out in the world and just got called to preach and got saved. And then he moved to Indianapolis. And the first time he came to church, he preached for us. It was like a second or third sermon. I remember all the guys were there. And, and it was like we couldn't wait to get him in the group. And it was kind of like, oh, wait and see, man. You're going to have a blast. Right? And it wasn't all natural fun. It was, there was a lot of spiritual components to it, but it's like, now you need to be a part of this. This is really edifying and beneficial. And, you know, this is where God wanted them. And so what this is going to create in the book of Acts is right at this moment, now, and we'll point it out, and this is going to be one of the big emphasis that we make in these next 10 chapters. Every chapter... Satan tries to destroy it. The unity and fellowship of the people. Like it's very distinct. Every single chapter, Satan is saying, okay, you're in one accord, you're unified, people are being saved, the fellowship is growing both in quantity and in quality, and then Satan unleashes his attack. Every single chapter, he tries a different angle. And praise God... He protects the church every step of the way, and it just grows and grows and grows. And while it's growing in number, it's deepening in strength. Because at one point, the church is going to be scattered, and they're going to be on their own. All these various groups from Pentecost to come are going to go back to their... And you know how it is. Whenever we're all together at minister school on Thursday night, and they're shouting and singing and everything is good... Man, it's just an oasis. But then we get in the middle of of January and we're all tired of seeing each other because we're all sinful and things have been unspiritual for a while. It's a lot harder to continue in this same spirit. And so there's this attempt from this point forward for the next 10 chapters for Satan to divide. And I want to use that as what we've talked about tonight. Like this is this is where God wants his church right here. So Satan's going to try to prevent it. And that's the same thing for us in a different fashion to aspire to. The unity and love and fellowship, teaching of the Word, as God sees fit, the evangelizing of the Word, that's where we need to be. And we need to ward off Satan's attempts as God gives us insight to prevent that. And so um, I've said before about our church, we've not experienced a great revival like we desire to see yet. But in my brief time here, 
I feel very protective of the spirit we have here of love and unity. Not that it couldn't get better, it could. But I just recognize that God does have a closeness within us. At least I feel that way. And I know in due time, God will prosper that. And when I say I feel protective of that, I feel protected of that against Satan. Like I will see something come up and think, you know, something as silly as putting that map or the church covenant behind the pulpit. Like I said to the deacons, I don't want this to divide us. This is a silly map, right? When we were talking at the, the deacons meeting some, and Brother John mentioned it on Sunday night about you know, doing some redecorating in the sanctuary. That's fine, but I don't want it to destroy the spiritual just so we paint a wall. And we've got to be careful in moments where we start seeing these, well, I disagree with you, and you disagree with me. Well, that's okay. But when that disagreement begins to foster division... Whoa, let's step back and make sure the attitudes are rooted in love. That doesn't mean we just keep doing what we've been doing. We've got to make sure I'm rooting in love. I'm not going to let this divide me from you. You know, like if you disagree with me, no matter what, I'm not going to be divided from you, even though we may disagree. And to me, um, the story in my mind that really moved me when I heard it was, and I've shared this once before, and then we'll done. We're going a little long tonight. A church was building a building. The majority of the church wanted the, the sanctuary to be more multifunctional. And so they wanted those chairs that kind of are locked together. Like you can kind of put them where they're locked together, where they kind of form a bench, but they're all locked together. So they could then remove it. And if they had associations or whatever events, and the majority of the church wanted to do that. And there was a minority that stood up and just said, I know... I know this sounds unreasonable, but I have always my whole life had pews. And it's, I've been to churches like this, and it's a stumbling block for me. Like, I, it shouldn't be. It's my weak faith. Like, I know it's wrong. But I have a hard time imagining us doing this. And the church tabled the motion, and the majority did not want to cause a stumbling block to the minority. And they said, you know what? I don't really care whether it's a pew or whether it's a chair. But they care. And what they care about matters to me. Lest it be a stumbling block to their worship, I vote for for pews. And today the church has pews in it. And I thought, what a... A wonderful example of the way a church should be. Of, yeah, we can just not talk about it and stick to, you know, Robert's rules of order and be all formal about this and just, hey, if you're outvoted, you're outvoted. Good luck. Or, with Christian charity and brotherly love, say, no, I I care about you. And I want you to have freedom in worship. And uh, I think Paul, Paul teaches that in, in Corinthians pretty directly. So, something to be mindful of. We've gone long tonight. Appreciate everyone's attendance. Um, next On Wednesday, we'll jump to Acts 3. Like I said, we should get done with Acts 3 uh, on Wednesday night. And uh, we'll keep on marching ahead. So, 
Appreciate everyone coming this evening.